Okay, in high school, I can, uh, when I was in high school, I can distinctly remember an unpleasant activity that we did at a leadership retreat. Uh, perhaps some of you have been to some of these leadership retreats, you know, they have all kinds of team building things, different activities. And the presenter uh, prior to this activity was talking about the importance of listening and how listening is so key in, in actually showing love to other people and, and helping people stay connected, being a part of a community to help us appreciate what he was talking about. Uh, he had us pair up into groups of two. And one person was supposed to be the person who was going to talk. And they could talk about anything of interest to them. So that one person talked, and then the other person, their job was to stand there, was to be in the presence of that other person talking. But their job was to do their absolute best to convey the message that they were not listening. So I, I don't really remember what I did when it was my turn to be that person that didn't listen. Maybe I looked away, I'm not sure. But I sure remember how I felt when it was my turn to talk. Even though I knew that this was just an exercise and that the person who was ignoring me was just following instructions, I couldn't help but feel it. Like I felt rejected. I felt like maybe my value was questioned there. And it, it, it was difficult. I, I, I found myself trying to get their attention, like talking louder and, and maybe trying to say something that would be, you know, attention getting. I'm so glad that the exercise only lasted a few moments because trying to connect with someone who is not listening to you is painful. It hurts. I, I don't think you need me to explain that to you, but chances are you have all experienced something like that. Um, our students are we have some of our young people home from college. Welcome, you guys. Good to have you here. You know, perhaps you reached out to a classmate and they just weren't listening. They didn't, they didn't care. M maybe you've reached out to a coworker, or, or maybe you've reached out to a family member and they just were not present. They were not available to hear what you had to say. You, you felt that. And it's only natural when we reach out to someone and we try to connect with them and they're not listening. It's only natural for us to trust them less. Do you know what I mean? Like, if, if you have an experience where you're like, yeah, I don't really think you're listening to me, chances are I'm probably not going to open up so much to you the next time we talk. Like, there's this, there's this dynamic that happens when we don't feel like we're being heard. There's, there's a breakdown in trust. There's a distance that begins to, to gather there in, in that relationship. And this is especially true when it comes to communicating with God. If you pray for something that is really, really important to you, something that's, that's on your heart, that you are desperately wanting to have God hear, and you sense that there is no response. Maybe, maybe when you pray, sometimes you get the feeling like, no one is listening to me. If you have that feeling, if you've experienced that in your prayer life, then chances are you're probably not going to be real excited about having more conversations with God. There's, there's kind of a breakdown in trust that happens. Is God even listening? Can I, can I trust him? And if you have been a, a regular attending church member where you're returning tithes and offerings, and you're reading your Bible and you're praying and you see yourself as a good person and God is not giving you the attention or the responses that you feel like you deserve, that can be a tough pill to swallow. Also, if you see yourself as someone who's like, man, I'm a sinner, I've blown it, I've done so many bad things, and I feel like God's not listening to me, chances are I'm not good enough to make the cut. That maybe because I've done so many bad things that God is just like, ah, he's maybe a little farther away from, from me than he is from other people. Either way, either way, if you feel like God is not really listening to you, 
Like if he's far, far away somewhere, I barely hear you. If you don't feel like God is attentive to you, how can you trust him? How are you going to give him all, as, as Natanya just saying? How are you going to give him your entire life and depend upon him to save you and carry you through? How are you going to do that if you don't feel like God is attending to you and present with you, cares for you? Today, as we continue our sermon series called The Story of the Cross, where we're taking a look at some of these outstanding moments in the story of Jesus going to the cross, making the ultimate sacrifice for the redemption of our souls. So we take a look at this. We're, we're going to consider one moment in that uh, story today where Jesus experienced being forsaken by God, where Jesus reached out and God was not attentive to him. Forsaken by God. At least he felt that way. Um, and, and how we're going to look at this story and, and we're going to see it's really significant how this story gives us hope that no matter what you have done in the way of bad behavior, no matter what you might be going through right now, challenges, difficulties, no matter what's going on, we can know for sure that God is present and that he can be trusted to see us through whatever we're dealing with right now. The title of the message is Forsaken for Me forsaken for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you permission to work upon our hearts. We give you permission to reveal yourself, to open our eyes so that we can see just how close you are, closer than we even think you are, as we've just sung. I pray, God, that your spirit would speak to us from the Bible and from this amazing story. Speak to us truth and inspire us to trust in you fully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, please turn with me to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter, chapter 27, uh, verse 46. And as you're going there, just a quick observation that the gospel writers in the Bible make about the life of Jesus. Like all throughout his life, it describes, the Bible describes Jesus as a calm and confident person calm and confident, whether he's going through a, a storm on the lake where waves are crashing over the side of the boat and the disciples are just freaking out, thinking that they're going to drown there. Jesus is calm. He's confident. Whether he's around a raging demoniac who, you know, people are scared. Right? Jesus is calm around the, the craziest of circumstances. When his disciples are slow to learn, and it can be really, uh, a really frustrating group of people to work with, Jesus is calm. He's confident with them. Religious leaders undermining his ministry. Jesus is not getting upset. He's not getting frustrated. He's calm. Although Jesus knew that he would suffer and die in Jerusalem. You think about that. He knew how he was going to die. He was going to be crucified. Jesus does not run away from that. He doesn't avoid it. But the Bible tells us that he resolutely sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He intentionally goes there. He's calm and he's confident, even in the face of his own physical suffering. Jesus is calm when Judas betrays him in the Garden of Gethsemane, one of his own disciples. He's calm when the armed mob arrests him, when Jesus is mistreated, when he's mocked, they threw a robe around him and bowed down to him, when he's abused. Jesus is calm and he's confident through all of this, all of this craziness. Jesus is calm as he carries his cross. Even as he is nailed to the cross, Jesus is calm. Jesus shows unusual calmness when he prays for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. As Pastor Michael preached about last week, he's calm and he's confident. And when he says to the criminal at his side, 
You will be with me in paradise. He gives him this calm, confident assurance that he would be saved. In every way, in every way, Jesus is calm and confident during this incredibly terrible ordeal. But when we get to Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, we hear Jesus say something that is completely out of character. Look at it with me, please. Verse 46, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For about six hours, Jesus was nailed to the cross around nine in the morning, and now it's three in the afternoon. About six hours, Jesus has endured this agony. Just his body is racked with pain, but he calmly endures it. But now, around 3 p.m., the Bible tells us something changes. He's just about to die, and something is, something is, is completely different now. It's, there's, a, there's a change that takes place. He's no longer calm and confident. He's crying out in desperation. He suddenly feels terribly alone, and so he cries out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That's important to Matthew to let us know that Jesus said these words in Aramaic. That's important to Matthew. He's, he's trying to make a point here. He goes on to say in verse 47 that the people misunderstood what Jesus was saying. They, call, they thought that he was calling for Elijah, and that would be a very common understanding for them because they believed that in times of great distress, Elijah, the one who was translated without seeing death, Elijah would come and give assurance and comfort and peace and hope uh, to people going through a difficult time. So they thought that Jesus was calling out for Elijah. Because of the suffering and the fatigue that he had gone through, perhaps Jesus could no longer speak clearly and so they misunderstood his words. We can only guess about that. But we can say for sure that had this clearly been said, they certainly would have understood because the Jews standing around the cross, they knew Aramaic. I mean, they spoke this. Was, this Aramaic was the, was the common street language. This was the colloquial language of the Jewish people. This is the language that was used by friends when they were just walking down the street. They would talk in that way. It was, it was a common language. It was, it was an informal language. It was a, it was a personal language. And although Jesus knew Hebrew, he would have been able to read Hebrew and speak in Hebrew. Very significant that when Jesus cries out to God, he's just sharing his, this heart-wrenching cry. He doesn't speak to God in Hebrew. He speaks to him in Aramaic. He speaks to him as he would speak to a close friend, a trusted friend. And he shares this deep heart sorrow with his father. Even though Jesus felt forsaken, we see the, the incredible perfect character of Jesus coming out. Even in this terrible situation, he's feeling forsaken, but he is not angry and he is not complaining. Check me, look at it. Look at what it's saying here. Notice that he does not say, God, God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't say that. Jesus uses an expression of endearment. He says, my God. Even though he felt forsaken, he's still referring to God. He, he, he's like, God, I'm still reaching out to you. You are my God. I'm holding on to you. And to emphasize the closeness of this connection, Matthew records him saying it twice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, when Jesus asks this question, when he cries out, why have you forsaken me? He's not implying that God has 
departed physically from Jesus, that no longer is God around Jesus anymore. That's not the implication. He knows that God is always present. He knows that God is there. But in this moment, he cries out because he feels that God, he senses that God has turned his back on him. This is an incredible thing when you think about who Jesus is. Jesus is God. The Bible tells us that Jesus is God, that Jesus is not a created being, that he has life within himself, underived from anyone else. And so for eternity, and, and I can't really, words kind of fall short to explain this, but I'm going to do my best. For eternity, Jesus has always lived in the presence of his Father, enjoying the, the approval, enjoying the, uh, the affirmation of his Father. But now, for the first time in, for the first time for Jesus, he experiences something that he's never experienced before for an eternal being. This, I, I don't even know how to explain this, but he feels forsaken by the one who has always approved of him, always been present, always been there with a smile on his face, so to speak. Up to this point, Jesus has suffered extreme physical agony. And we know that he was beaten. We know that he was struck. We know that they took a crown of thorns and they pressed it hard on his head. That, that we know that he, was, that he was whipped and his back was, was ripped apart. He was nailed to the cross. His body has been brutally tortured. But significantly, the gospel writers say practically nothing. In fact, they say nothing about Jesus crying out about the physical pain. Jesus never says, ouch, in the gospel story of him being crucified. Yet, when Jesus feels forsaken by God, all of a sudden, we see him crying out, and not just crying out a little bit. The Bible says he cried out with a loud voice. Very interesting. Matthew uses a Greek word that's translated cried out. That word is used nowhere else in the Bible. It's as if this is a special expression, a unique, a deep heart cry, almost experienced by none other. Yes, experienced by none other. And he cries out. It's as if Matthew is saying that the suffering of feeling forsaken by his father is so bad that the physical pain that Jesus went through, nails in his hands, ripped apart, that physical pain is almost not even noteworthy. That just kind of fades into the background. Words fail to describe Jesus' suffering. If Jesus endured the physical pain of the cross calmly without saying anything, what kind of suffering would cause him to cry out with a loud voice? I mean, if he's able to, to endure this, this physical beating without saying anything that the gospel writers are, are, are recording here, but now all of a sudden he is crying out, now something is really hurting him, what must that have been if the, the physical pain of the cross was not really hurting him? What kind of pain must he be going through? Like we can't even, I can't even imagine how painful, how difficult this was for Jesus to feel forsaken by his father. And yet the amazing thing to me about this story is that Jesus was not caught off guard by this experience. It wasn't like he went into this blindly, like he didn't know that this would happen. Jesus knew beforehand that he would suffer in this way, in some unimaginable way, like never before. And yet he chose to do it anyway. How do I know that's true? 
This is how Jesus knew that he would suffer in this way. This is Psalm 22. Before the famous shepherd psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything that I need. Before that, we find Psalm 22 that gives this experience. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These were not new words to Jesus. Hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, the Jewish hymn book recorded what Jesus would go through. They sang about it. And we know that this was not new to Jesus because he knew it so well that he quoted it when he was going through it on the cross. I mean, Psalm 22 is practically a narrative of the crucifixion. Jesus knew what was ahead. Psalm 22 talks about the talks about one, talks about Jesus being ridiculed. It talks about him having his his hands and his feet pierced. It says that in Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, it says that they would cast lots for his clothing. I mean, it spells it out really, really specific. Jesus knew what he was getting into when he chose to go to the cross, and yet he chose to live by scripture nonetheless. He knew that it would be painful to follow the Bible teaching, and yet he chose to live by it. And he did this because he knew that in order to save humanity, in order to save me, in order to save you from death forever and to give us eternal life, to save us from the things that mess up our relationships today with him and with others, in order to do that, Jesus had to be, he had to be forsaken. Please turn with me to Psalm chapter 50, oh, sorry, sorry, Isaiah chapter 59. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Please go there with me. And, and, and as you're going, I uh, just want to make a couple of comments here. Now, the Bible affirms that God is the source of life. Like, we came from God. We did not come about on our own. We, we, we did not come about as a result of some random process over millions of years. The Bible says that we were created by God. And I would, I would argue that, that God, God created us. And so our life is completely dependent upon God. He is the source of life. There are not other sources of life. He is the source. It is him alone. And nowhere in the Bible does it say that people can live just fine on their own, just as a tree derives its life from the, the sap and the nutrients that come from the roots. And when the tree is separated from that, it's going to die. In the same way, we cannot live apart from God. And this is why sin is lethal. And this is why God hates sin, why he abhors it. Because it is lethal to us. Notice what it says in Isaiah 59, starting with verse 1. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. God does not have a short arm. He can reach us nor is his ear too dull to hear. His, his hearing is just fine. But verse 2, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have what? They have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. This is what hides God's face from us. Sin separates us from God, our source of life. It hides his face from us. When we feel far away from God or that he is not hearing us or, or maybe we just have this idea that ah, maybe, maybe God just doesn't care. The problem is not with God. The problem is not that God has gone somewhere. The problem is that sin has blinded us. It has turned our face away from God. It has not turned him away from us. He, he does not turn away from us rather. Sin turns us away from him. 
Just like light and darkness cannot coexist, sin and God, they cannot occupy the same place. Now, some of you may know that I worked through college as a literature evangelist. A literature evangelist, for those who are not familiar, is someone who goes door to door, knocks on people's doors, um, unannounced most of the time, that's the way it was for us, uh, knocks on people's doors and tries to sell them books like the Blue Bible Story books, which you've probably seen before. Um, there's also uh, other series of books like the Conflict of the Ages series, which goes through the entire Bible uh, on an adult level. And uh, wonderful books, right? And so I w- my job was to go door to door, sell these books, and in this way I was to pay for my, this is how I paid for my school. Um, So uh, my first summer, I worked in Ohio, and this was really tough work, as you can imagine if you've not done this, knocking on people's doors, trying to sell them books. um, It it, it can be tough. Um, But I was really motivated, and I'll tell you why. I I needed money. (laughs) I I knew that I needed to sell a lot of books so that I'd have enough money to go to school. Uh, So I was very motivated. And which means that I worked really hard. I worked from Sunday to Thursday. Sometimes I'd work on Friday as well. I'd work from one in the afternoon to about nine at night. I worked really hard to learn from my leaders who, who had a lot of experience with this and passed on some really good knowledge. They helped me. I, I memorized my presentation, all the prices of the books, etc., etc. I did everything that I thought that I was supposed to do in order to sell lots of books. But in spite of all of my efforts for the first three weeks, 15 days, eight hours a day, I didn't sell anything. And as you can imagine, uh, during that time, I really started to question my trust in God. Like, come on, God. It's not like I'm selling, you know, something bad. I mean, I'm selling books that talk about you and people need to know this. And, and man, this is going to help kids learn about Jesus. And this is a wonderful thing. God, I, th- I think you opened this opportunity for me. Why am I not selling books? God, where are you? Where are you? And I became very frustrated. I felt the, the pressure. I'm like, time is going by in this summer. And if I don't start selling a lot of books here, I'm not going to have money to go to school. And then what am I going to do? Like, I'm just really starting to stress about this. And it, and it came to a point one day where I was so frustrated and felt so alone, felt really forsaken. Um, I wasn't, but I felt that way. And I cried out to God one day. I remember this tears in my face. Like, I was, I was an adult <laughs> man, and I'm crying. Uh, I, was, I was in distress. I'm crying out to God. I'm like, God, can you please give me some kind of assurance that you're there? I mean, I, I knew what the, what the Bible story had said, uh, says about Jesus when he went through some difficult times. Garden of Gethsemane, angels showed up to encourage him when he was in the wilderness. Angels showed up. I was like, God, you could make an angel appear right now and just tell me what's going on. Give me some kind of assurance. And I cried out to God, because I felt so alone, and I heard absolutely nothing, nothing, even though his light was shining on me. I didn't see it. By the fourth week, I started to realize that the problem was not God. It was not, God, where are you? God, what are you? The problem was not God. The problem was me. When I knocked on people's doors, I was not there to give them a blessing. I was there to take their money, That's what I was, I had dollar signs in my eyes. All I was thinking about was, I gotta pay for a scholarship, you've got money, give me your money. Like that's that's kind of what was, I mean, that's not how it came out, but maybe it is a little bit. Um, And although I was supposed to be there ministering to people, I had made it all about me. Now, if you know anything about sin, the essence of sin is me. It's it's self-focus. 
preoccupation with ourselves. And when I decided to serve others and let God take care of me, I was going to worry about being a blessing to others. When that transition happened, when the sin in my life was addressed, everything changed. By the end of the summer, I had enough money for school. But I learned a really important lesson that summer, especially in those first three weeks. I learned something really important, and that is this. Being disconnected from God is terrible. It's terrible. Holding on to to sin, trying to do things our way, trying to demand it our way, trying to be in charge of our life, uh, of my life, demanding things the way I want them to be, blinds me from God. When I'm focused on myself, I cannot see God. And it's horrible. Although God does not abandon sinners, he does not. Please hear that. Even though we might think, oh man, where is God? And I don't feel him close. Therefore, he must not be. The problem is not that. God does not abandon sinners. But sin makes us feel forsaken by him. Sin alters our perception. And it turns us away from God. That is what Jesus willingly chose for you and for me on the cross. That is what he experienced on the cross. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's the answer? Very interesting that Matthew doesn't give an answer, but we do find an answer in the Bible. The apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, listen to the words. This is, now this is really important. This is why Jesus had to be forsaken. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. On the cross, the perfect Savior received the sin of the world. That means the sin that you most recently committed and every other sin that has ever been committed. That was placed upon Jesus. He became sin for us us. A transaction had to take place so that you and I could have hope. Because he was made sin for us, Paul says, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is able, if we trust in him, Jesus is able to make us clean. He is able to take those things that separate us from God, that blind us from the reality of God in our life with us, with you right now, He is able to to, to take those things that separate us from God and deal with them because they were all put on Jesus and Jesus fully dealt with them. He took them to the grave and buried them. Jesus had to be forsaken because it was in being forsaken that he dealt with that which separates us from the source of life. If you ever wonder is God with me? If you sense that maybe he's not near that, that maybe he's turned his face and you you wonder if God is with you. That when you sin, you know, where is God when I'm sinning? We can look to Jesus. Sometimes if if you're anything like me, I do this thing, it's not conscious, but but I do this thing where I I kind of want to hide certain unpleasant realities in my life from God. Can you relate to that? Like, maybe I don't want to talk to him about the recent sin that I just committed. It's as if God maybe doesn't know, (laughs) right? This is how much God knows about that sin. He carried it, and he took it to the grave. 
Like, God knows exactly how terrible the human being can be. He knows the full capacity that, that we have for doing what is evil because he carried it himself personally in the person of Jesus. So when we sin, we don't have to be like, oh, I need to clean myself up before I can come to God. God has already dealt with that. And he is with you. And he can be trusted because there is no sin that has ever been committed or ever will be committed that he has not dealt with. He knows how to see you through. You can trust a God like this. You can trust a God who's willing to risk it all for sinful people who may or may not accept him. Risk it all, even his own very existence, willing to step out into the unknown of being forsaken by God. We can trust a God like this. This is a God. Jesus is the God. Our Father is the God. The God of the Bible is the one who meets us where we are at so that he can lift us up and connect us to himself. Jesus is that bridge. He's the one that, that connects the gap that sin has caused in our relationship with him. Regardless of what you might be feeling right now or what you've done, God is with you. He is with you. And when you're questioned, when, when, sorry, when you're, when you're tempted to question that, that is he with me and is he for me? Is he on my side? Is, is, he, is he wanting to even be a part of this mess? If you're, if you're tempted to question that, then I invite you to consider the cross, to look to Jesus, to see him there dying on that cross for you. It's for you that he is there. It's for you. He knows who you are. He knows what you've done. He knows what I've done. It's for us. It's for you. It's for me that he is there on the cross. Consider Jesus on the cross. And as you consider him, you're going to find really good reasons to say to him, Jesus, I know that you care. Jesus, I know that you are able to see me through any trial, any temptation, any difficulty, any habit that I just can't kick. I know that you're able to save me completely. And I choose to trust in you, Jesus, because you were forsaken for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being willing to go to hell, literally, so that we could be connected to you. God, I pray for the heart to trust you radically, to trust you even when we can't feel. We may not be able to sense your presence, but we know that if you were willing to be forsaken so that our sin could be dealt with, then we have nothing to fear and that we can trust in you to save us completely. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.